Venom Computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today, we turn our attention to the world of capital raising. And we have the pleasure of having Matt Vitale, the CEO and co-founder of Virtual, Australia's leading crowdsource funding platform, who's been behind over 240 successful offers, raising a massive $190 million for Australian startups. We dive into exactly what it takes to run a successful campaign and what you need to avoid and the most common pitfalls when it comes to actually screwing up or not getting it over the line. It's a pleasure to have Matt on here. And if you are interested, he's actually raising for his own company. So you can take advantage of all these other companies who are turning to the community to help raise capital for their startups. It's a great opportunity. I encourage you to take a look. Let's dive straight in. Matt, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being here. And I'd love to hear your take on intelligent performance in the capital raising space. Hi, Michael. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, intelligent performance, uh, particularly in the capital raising space, I think is understanding um, why things are working, uh, why you've achieved uh, certain results, uh, and particularly so you can do more of the things that uh, that are working well and, and listen to things that are perhaps not. And in your space, Matt, I'd love to give a bit of an intro to virtual in just a second, but you're, you've done how many capital raises at this point or how much, maybe a better way to put it, how many have you assisted in actually delivering? Yeah, so virtuals and equity crowdfunding platform um, or crowdsource funding as we call it in Australia. Uh, we're the largest platform that does what we do. The industry is about five years uh, young here. Um, we launched in 2018. We've hosted over 240 successful offers uh, and facilitated over 190 million uh, through in, of investment through the platform. Um, and that's across uh, around 110,000 uh, individual investments. Um, crowdfunding, uh, equity crowdfunding is relatively new in Australia. Uh, the UK has probably got the most mature equity crowdfunding industry. Uh, it emerged in the wake of the GFC, and particularly as a way, a useful way for early stage businesses to raise capital when other parts of the financial system uh, were not open to them. Um, the UK experience or innovation has inspired other parts of the world to create similar industries. So the United States, um, they were the first to actually pass specific crowdfunding legislation and, and they've got you know a similarly young and thriving equity crowdfunding industry. Um, New Zealand, the same, but Australia was pretty late to the party. We've accelerated pretty quickly in a global sense. Um, a study was uh, completed recently looking at crowdfunding industries around the world and Australia is now the second largest in the world in per capita terms behind only the UK. Um, but was still seven times, uh, or the UK is still seven times the size of Australia's, which kind of demonstrates the scale of the opportunity ahead of us. Interesting. And I, I've got some experience in capital raising, albeit it was, you know, not, I wouldn't say it's extensive. And one of the eye-opening things is just how tricky it is and how, how investors can be so misinterpreted from a founder perspective. The, I got the chance to do it from like raising capital 
for a business I was part of and also assisting others in raising capital for businesses they were trying to raise for. And it was such an eye-opening experience. And I think you haven't done it before. It can be, I I don't know, it kind of maybe sounds simple So you just go out there. And given the number of people who still hit me up on LinkedIn saying, do you want to invest in my business on the first message? (laughs) It seems like it's an ongoing educational issue, this. So tell us about, from, from your perspective, like, you get to see both sides. Is it, can you cookie cutter capital raising or or not, basically? Does it really, can, do you see good raises for bad products happen and then bad raises for good products happen? Do you see that quite a lot? But yeah, for, for sure. It, it's, capital raising is a process. Um, so it's really, it's quite interesting because yes, to a certain extent it is, and, and in, indeed it should be, cookie cutter um but then other parts of it uh are quite nuanced individual and, and there needs to be uh the you know the ability for um you know variation um and and, and uh doing what's right for your business and for your opportunity and what i mean by that is um there are some principles that i think work um and are essential for all capital raising uh, um momentum uh, the importance of building momentum uh, right. authenticity having enough time to engage with your audience and um you know and tell tell a compelling story and whether that's a small audience of investors even in a private raise or a large audience of investors um all of these principles still ring true and we've taken a lot of these things and uh put them into our platform, put them into our process, which um, is repeatable and, and, and a big reason why we've been able to do the volume of work that we've been able to do on the platform. Um, but really, you know, we think it, it's about telling stories and connecting with um, an, an audience. This is an inherently risky asset class. So, you know, uh, high risk, but the potential for high returns. Um, yeah. And yes, some people get it and are really good at it um, and, you know, uh, able to raise um, capital and achieve great results, sometimes for opportunities that might not be as compelling. Um, and, you know, it, it, the opposite, like sometimes there are amazing opportunities, but, uh, you know, for, in a commercial sense, um, but, you know, founders haven't been able to uh, realize the full extent of their capital raising ambitions because, you know, they haven't really nailed um, a lot of these these things that I've described. So I'd love to start actually with what goes wrong most commonly from your perspective. And given that you've seen so many, um, I'm just wondering as a percentage, how many that you see actually run a campaign? What's the success ratio typically in that space? Yeah, it's... um So... There are some general rules of thumb or observations that we've seen on the platform um, in how people use our process. I think it's worthwhile just for me to sketch out at a really high level how a campaign works on our platform. Um, So essentially, there there are three phases. There's a preparation phase. Then there's an expression of interest campaign. So this is a pre-offer marketing campaign. Uh, And then there is the offer itself. Now... The expression of interest campaign will run for uh, two to three weeks, and then the offer runs for about two weeks. Um, and then we move into settlements and uh, collect the money and, and ensure that the shares are issued. And then during that expression of interest phase, 
companies out publicly marketing uh, their opportunity, um, seeking non-binding expressions of interest, uh, which are made on our platform. Um, and it's quite deliberately high-level information about the company at that stage. So companies typically won't talk publicly about their valuation or um, you know, really kind of granular financial information that comes later when they make the offer and there's a regulated disclosure document that's released for the offer. Um, so I think it's important to understand those concepts in our process because um, there are things that we observe that founders get wrong uh, and uh, hold them back from achieving the, the full extent of their, their ambitions within that process. Yeah. So and who, I think, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go on. The, like uh, the big one um, is, you know, probably the biggest one and the one that we've observed the most is um, not using uh, this process of price discovery that the expression of interest campaign uh, provides. So, uh, you know, particularly at the moment, the importance of like meeting the market in terms of, you know, your valuation is, um, you know, can't be overstated. So, right. um, you know, I think founders uh, often, um, you know, have a picture in their mind of what they'd like to achieve uh, in terms of raising or in terms of, um, you know, evaluation outcome. Um, and that expression of interest process is an opportunity to engage with lead investors who will give them a meaningful price discovery. And it's useful to uh, think about people that have a propensity to provide, to, to write a larger check are going to be more price sensitive. So that price discovery data is going to be more meaningful. And what's unique in our world is that people can write smaller checks. And um, this can be a challenge sometimes because someone that's writing you know, a check of a few hundred dollars or even a few thousand dollars might be less price sensitive than someone that's going to write a, a more material check. And yeah. um, the, you know, the guidance that we give companies assumes that there is a fair and acceptable offer to, that's presented to founders. And um, I think founders sometimes uh, miss that, you know, your capital raise is unlikely to be the last time that you will need capital. So thinking about your strategy into the future, it's not just about shooting butts out, you know, on your on your valuation. So, you know, about 95, 90 to 95% of the offers that we host on the platform are successful. They'll meet their minimum funding target within the, um, the offer period. Um, and the reason for that is, there's, uh, you know, that, that work is done during that expression of interest phase and companies are engaging with investors for meaningful price discovery to ensure that they've got, you know, enough of their raise, um, you know, uh, covered before they're in the, the public offer phase. That 5 to 10% that doesn't quite get there, it's often because they've missed that final part of that meaningful price discovery where they're, you know, getting feedback from investors and making sure that there's support for the share price and, and um, taking on feedback on how they presented the offer. Yeah, wow. Okay, interesting. And and so when you say, actually, maybe we should break it into those four key steps because I'd say one of the, there's so much, Typically, at least my experience is we, we went out to the market and we we needed capital. It wasn't so much we wanted to raise capital; it was like we needed it. And that was arguably a lot of the planning, 
got overlooked. And we certainly, I don't think we talked a lot about, we had our, our key documents and stuff like that, but the preparation piece was probably um, shortly. Say. So tell us about the prep piece, because that sounds like actually that's the key part. Is that the planning phase? So thinking a couple of races ahead, if that's going to be the roadmap or what, what actually happens in that prep space? Yeah. So preparation is key and we've got like, and we've done this a lot. So, um, and over the years have been able to develop lots of, you know, helpful materials, precedence, um, yeah, an experienced campaign management team that, you know, worked on lots of different campaigns so they can offer insights on, um, you know, various stages of the campaign, what, what's worked in the past, how to pivot if things aren't um, going, you know, as, as you want them to, um, what success looks like. Um, I think the critical thing is uh, just just getting your story right, and it, it's um, you know it's got to be uh, like it, it is a story after all. Like storytelling, it, this is true of all capital raising, and um, I think companies always need to be in a capital raising and storytelling mindset, whether they're raising capital or not. Particularly if you've got investors, um, many companies come to us and they haven't raised external capital and, and perhaps it's the first time that they're going to do it. And that's an education piece. And I think this process actually prepares them really well for that. But then many companies come to us and perhaps they've already raised capital. So they've got a small number of investors or they've done a process with us before and um, they've got, you know, perhaps hundreds or thousands of CSF shareholders. The critical thing is to, you know, maintain communications with investors and um you know make sure that like you're updating people on your progress and uh you know i see founders doing this um in different ways and ultimately uh you know you've got to do what's right what's right for you but choosing a cadence um and sticking to it being consistent um it's not just helpful for like building a good relationship with uh your investors but it also like forces you to think deeply about like where you are as a business and the things that are important um, into into the future. Um, the you know the offer document. Um, it's important that companies make a good start on that. Uh, I think the better campaigns uh, companies have almost completed that that draft of the offer document before they open the expression of interest campaign because um, that's that's really. You know, your um, telling of the story to investors, your communication of the investment opportunities, all the information is there. And when people are asking questions about your business, um, you know, you've often got a, a canned response that can be uh, provided to them that, you know, obviously is, is very, um, but preparation is key because once you're into that uh, expression of interest phase, you want to be prioritizing um you know, doing things like we're doing now, you know, um, being on podcasts, speaking to the media, chatting to investors, um, you know, being as outward focused as possible. Uh, so to the extent that you can knock off a lot of these administrative things and, and the storytelling aspects, um, it's, you know, it's to your immense advantage. And in terms of where the story piece, what is it that you're trying to tease out there? Is it the, like I got to, See, there's kind of two campaigns which I've, I've kind of come across or followed most more recently with virtual in terms of the stuff campaign with Hunter Johnson at the helm and, and the man cave um, piece. I feel like they've got a very 
they put their cores front and center, naturally given the type of the product. And then Cyclone, which is a whole different kettle of fish, which was all about um, effectively large washing machines for rubbish, which dissolve the plastic and turn it into useful byproducts. So both of them really, you know, super different in terms of you know, who they might appeal to. One very renewable energy focused, one being a core kind of cause and cause led. What's the story elements that both of those got got right? Because as I'm aware, Matt, both of those ended up having successful races, cycling on a half a mil. Um, forgive me, I'm not too less familiar with the stuff and where they ended up. But what are the elements of the story that you think resonated well, or you helped them curate, as it were? Um, I'm going to answer this by talking about uh, how unhelpful I think crowd uh, crowdfunding is as a term for us. Um, okay. and, and, and you'll see why. Uh, uh, but um, like crowdfunding brings a lot of uh, kind of um, you know preconceived notions about you know other types of crowdfunding, so reward crowdfunding, and um, you know so I've never really liked it as a term because it means that we need to walk people back from um, their understanding of what we do. There's one platform in the states that we uh, called WeFunder. Um, it's very similar, and I've kind of spent some time with um, uh, that team. Just comparing notes about you know um, businesses operating in different parts of the world and you know how how some things are very similar and other things are different. And um, Johnny Price from WeFunder has started to call what what we do um, community funding or community rounds, and it's a different dynamic in the states in particular. You know, it's the largest pool of venture capital on the planet, and um, you know, uh, community funding um, or community rounds, uh, the, the the reason for them is, um, you know, for a compelling business opportunity that has um, venture capital available to it, they're making a deliberate choice to offer a portion of their round to their community. And um, we, we will, over time, be you know, pushing um, for a change to to describe what we do rather than crowdsource funding to community source funding in Australia, because I think that describes exactly what we do. And that's sorry, it's a long answer to your question, but I think it's relevant. Um, that's good. You're building a community, so you need to think about you know your why. Why do you exist as a business, and um, who might care about what it is that you're trying to achieve? Because I think that's um, that's our superpower is the ability to appeal to a national audience of investors and the ability for them to participate at a far lower threshold than, um, you know, that would typically be required to, for an opportunity like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so being really crisp on, you know, why you exist, what you're going after, um, is, is critical. So, you know, in Stuff's case, you know, they have a really, you know, clear and compelling um, proposition that, you know, that the Man Cave Association and, and why people are, um, you know, getting involved. There are lots of people that, that care about, um, you know, the, the mission that, that Hunter is on. And, you know, they have, uh, you know, a, a rich vein of, um, you know, content and networks and supporters. Um, and they, they achieved over a million dollars, and which was unsurprising to us, um, it, you know, particularly in this year, which has been a very challenging capital market, you know, other parts of the financial system have not been able to provide capital to, to founders, but crowdsource funding this year has 
continue to deliver at similar levels to, you know, certainly on virtual to what we have over the past two years, which is nothing short of remarkable. Um, and Cyclion, you know, similarly, uh, you know, a business at a very early stage, but if they execute, you know, the the impact that they can make in, in you know, turning waste plastic into energy is, you know, a, a amazing. Now, people know that this is a business at the start of its journey and it comes, you know, it comes with risks, but if they, if they succeed, um, it's, you know, it, it could be a, a, an amazing result in financial terms, but the, you know, environmental and social impact of, of them achieving that, um, you know, is amazing as well. So I think for every business, it's thinking about why do we exist and who are the people that might, you know, care or be invested in our success and then how what is the best mechanism for me to you know communicate that message and um and tell that story to them and in your experience matt when is it different then so you hear a lot about I had, i've got some friends who've just raced through venture capital specifically and typically when i'm engaged with vcs that can be very commercial actually the, the commercial is usually the last time they're, they're all commercial actually the best way to put it would be them actually more about character and they really focus on character and they put you through the ringer before you even, you know, like the meetings I've had where you just have three three meetings, it's all just about your family, about how you think about the world. Like, and, then, and then, you know, with, as they get up to leave, they're going, oh, so what do you want? Like, it's really like, it's like that sometimes. How different do you have to approach this community funding piece compared to traditional raising with VC? Is it dramatically different? Oh, look, in, in that... Um it's uh, it's not dramatically different. It's just that the mechanism for starting these conversations and then the people that you're speaking to, you know, um, like are, are different. So, and it, look, there's a valid reason why that is an important part of um, you know a, a VC funds uh, diligent process. Um, you know, starting a business and going after a mission is hard, right? Like in the early stages, there's it, it, on any given day, there's any number of things that can kill your business. It, you know, it can all be over in a moment, right? So you're living in this constant state of existential crisis for a period of years. And um, I mean, I, I feel it. I see it Not daily too. with, you know, all, all of our yeah. clients. It's, um, but, you know, some people, uh, um, uh, I don't know, describe it as an affliction sometimes, you know, it's like they just, they have to start things. It's, you know, it's, um, they will fight for that. And I think that, you know, it's really important for, um, it, it's unsurprising that it's really important for, um, investors that know that that is the experience that these founders, uh, will have and, you know, their ability to continue, um, when, you know, many others may give up is often going to be the difference between, you know, succeeding and building an amazing business and, um, mm -hmm. and, and failing. Um, now, uh, I think it's done in a different way in, in, in our world. Um, but the campaigns that do really well, uh, you know, have an authenticity about them and they use, storytelling they'll use their campaign video webinars um you know being accessible to people uh to demonstrate their authenticity that you know they are driven to achieve what it is that that the business is setting out to achieve 
And I, I think it's got to be more than just a financial, um, than just a financial outcome. Um, that that's critical and important uh, in our world, particularly because the, the, this is investment crowdfunding. So you know, it's probably one of the things that's fundamentally different to you know other types of crowdfunding, reward crowdfunding, and others that you know. Yes, some people are investing and participating in these campaigns, um, probably more with their heart on occasion than their head because they're like, this is a risky opportunity. Um, but if these guys succeed, the world will be, you know, on some measure incrementally better. I want to back them and I want to be involved in that. Um, and I think it's true that, you know, some people can kind of like reconcile uh, like that risk um, in our world, they can reconcile that risk or trade off that risk against the the potential for for, for benefit. Um, but that that's how people do it in our world. It's similar to you know what that process is trying to achieve, but yeah. um, you know yeah. authenticity. Yeah. So if we come back to your three step process, are there people in the expression of interest phase, Matt, which actually decide a no go? Like, is there a point where you don't launch the broader campaign at that point? If you feel like your price expectations or price requirements, maybe we better way to put it, don't meet the require what the interests of the uh, or the appetite of the market. Yeah, and and look, that's always a possibility. Um, I'd say between eighty to eighty-five percent of companies uh, receive enough interest, or you know, um, you know that that EOI performs enough for them to to. Pre- Proceed to the next stage, but there is no obligation for someone uh, to move from an expression of interest phase to an offer phase. Um, we, I mean, one of the advantages of one of the key advantages of, of the regime that we've got in Australia is that it is possible for companies to get out there and start marketing their opportunity um, before releasing all of the information about the offer, uh, right. and because because. That that is a heavily regulated exercise. There is a disclosure document. Uh, it's a cut down version of a prospectus. There's an online communication forum that needs to be uh, you know monitored and answered. Um, there's uh, you know uh, uh, you know an, an obligation to update the offer document if there's a material change to the business. So um, before you're in those settings, because those that's a really serious period when your your offer is open, um, it is you know extremely valuable to just get out there and just see if you know is this an opportunity that people are interested in, and it's been a really effective filter on our platform because um, yes, companies will open an expression of interest campaign despite their best efforts. There isn't a big enough audience um, the way that they're presenting the opportunity. It's a pretty easy conversation to have with companies, you know. It's like it's not a reflection on your business, but you know the market is speaking. There's not really the appetite for you to do a raise like you want to do right now. So you know, pivot and think think about you know another way to keep progressing on your plans. That's really useful. Um, yeah. Also, you know, it's useful to you know sometimes get feedback from the public about like opportunities as well. Like there is you know a great where we sit as an intermediary, you know, a great additional kind of um, you know filter or public feedback mechanism on opportunities that are that are presented um, at that stage. But having conversations with people and getting out there and testing the market um, b- 
before needing to, you know, give all of the information that is needed for, you know, disclosure. I mean, information is valuable. So, you know, companies should give it away when they, you know, have a reasonable prospect of achieving what they, they want to achieve. So, um, that's kind of the, you know, the, the principle behind uh, why why we pioneered the, the EOI process in the way that it is. Yeah, okay. And so let's assume it's all looking good. They've got a compelling story. They have, they've tested the market. The price that they're asking for their startup seems to be, I'm not sure how you quite gauge that, but some, some people seem to align on the on the valuation, as it, let's say. In terms of the offer, what's the offer component looking like? What are you seeing in terms of that space? What's knocking out of the park? I know stuff didn't, well, for all of a, you know, for, for about two weeks, I couldn't move for um, Ian Thorpe in my LinkedIn thread and, and he was on Channel 7. That's <laughs> just like, and, I, and actually to, to Hunter's huge credit, I, I thought he, he manufactured what, what was a really credible campaign. Actually, it got me really excited about the opportunity. We did invest in that, in that, in that deal. Um, and so what, what does a good offer period look like? That, that sounds like it's really game time then where you're really kind of throwing everything you got at it. Matt, would, would that be right? It is. But, um, what we say to founders is like, there's not, there's, there's not a lot of catching up in this game. So, you, you know, you need to do the work during that EOR phase and build a, a, a yep. big enough base of interest um, because, you know, in our world, and it's true of all capital raising, momentum and scarcity are key. And um, momentum really is everything. And, you know, there, there's every offer needs a minimum target and a maximum target. And this is a requirement of the, of, of the, of the law. Now, the minimum target... If you don't pass the minimum target within the offer period, uh, the offer doesn't proceed, no money changes hands. If you hit the maximum target, we have to close the offer. Now, um, the, the, the maximum, maximum, the statutory maximum is $5 million. Um, right. Now, that, that's the most that a company can raise under the crowdsource funding uh, regime within a 12-month period. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't recommend that companies just set the maximum target at, at five million. Um, that's the importance of the expression of interest process. We give companies guidance as to how much demand is out there for their offer based on, you know, our observations and conversion data based on all of our previous campaigns. Um, the maximum, we think it's best practice to hit your maximum or get as close to it um, for a variety of reasons. Now, this isn't necessarily important to all companies but we we feel it's best practice because um you know i mean besides just being awesome to sell out a show and kind of mm. you know make it um easier for future capital raises and really prove that you've you know you've achieved that true price discovery like if every if all of the stock is gone you know the, the valuation has been supported like it's really hard to dispute that you know it was uh, meeting meeting the market um, but, uh, like that scarcity element, inspiring people to act, to take action, um, scarcity, uh, you know, is a critical element towards the end of the campaign. Now it'll either be because the clock's running out, the offer period is closing. So that's why we run, you know, very, fairly tight timelines or the box running out and you're closing in on your maximum target. So we kind of see that 
there's lots of opportunities for people to say, look, you know, there's only a few hundred thousand dollars of stock left. If you're thinking about this, you know, this is your time. You will miss out otherwise. All of these messages that, you know, founders are able to um, deliver to to people that are interested in the opportunity. Um, but momentum is perhaps the most important. And getting past, you know, like sc- scarcity is great, but if you don't have momentum, it's pretty hard to kind of activate that scarcity element. If there's no one there, it doesn't matter how scarce it is. So... Yeah. Exactly. And um, that, that's achieved uh, through, you know, finding lead investment, you know, having these deep conversations with investors that have said that they're interested in the offer mm. and getting past your minimum target as quickly as possible. And um, the, the, the way to do that and, and, you know, what we've observed works is, um, you know, having a group of investors uh, that you invite behind the curtain, you know, because often you're building an expression of interest list. You know, it, it could be thousands of people that have expressed interest. Now, in a, a period of a few weeks, it's practically impossible to get on the phone or have a meaningful conversation with every single one of those people. So, you know, once many communications are great and, uh, you know, email journeys, but um, choosing some people, a selection of investors that, you know, perhaps... Uh, minded to write a more material size check, um, but getting feedback from from them, and particularly in that later phase of the expression of interest campaign, when your offer document is is ready in draft, um, you know, it's testing your uh, you know how you're presenting the offer, the share price, asking for advice. You know, I say to people all the time that um, you know the old adage that you, you ask for money, you get advice. The opposite is true in our world. If you ask for advice, you know, often these are the people that will lead your round. And um, from an efficiency perspective, you know, if you have a minimum target of um, a few hundred thousand dollars, the fastest way to get there is to convince, you know, a few people to write larger checks. And that kind of works in terms of that, you know, um, wisdom of the crowd theory is that. You know, they're wanting these intelligent actors to move, to do the work, and then others will follow. And it's, you know, building on on that early momentum um, is the way to run a, a successful campaign. Yeah. Interesting. Makes me think of the crazy dancing guy analogy. But the, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, kind of like, it's kind of like that, Ron. Maybe the, you kind of need the first follow-up, that being the investor who's back in the, um, I'm not sure if the crazy guy's the entrepreneur. Maybe that is a good analogy, actually. So, um, very, very cool. Okay, so very interesting. Uh, now, I just want to touch on your background. So, I'm just going through your LinkedIn page at the back here. And so, you've come through, you've been a family yourself, you, you're a corporate lawyer, uh, recovery, still in progress by the sounds of things. And um, like, what was it about this space for you that you were like, oh man, this, this obviously there's the UK models and, and, the, and the US, but for you, why, why build a business which is about helping other businesses do do just this? Um yeah, lots of lots of varied reasons. Um, I mean, I I had I, I'm a lawyer. I worked in pro- I practice uh, uh, financial services, regulatory, and, and corporate work. Um, I help businesses, large businesses, raise capital, equity capital, um, you know, and and debt capital, but you know, e- equity capital, <clears throat> and um, preparing disclosure documents, and you know the teams and teams of people to bring these public offices of securities to market um you know it's naturally 
prohibitive for um, small and early stage businesses. Um, I observed what was happening in the UK, and for me, it was apparent that this this would be a revolution if this came to Australia because I saw, you know, I was professionally involved in how companies, big companies, would raise capital in a sophisticated way, and here is a way for early stage businesses to raise equity capital, um, you know, like big, big companies do. Um, you know, I'm, I think I became a lawyer because I was interested in business. Uh, you know, I, I came to law like a little bit later than um, my, you know, my contemporaries. I, I did some travel. I did some other things. I kind of, you know, started a few, um, you know, businesses and, and, you know, made a lot of mistakes and, uh, um, and learnt a lot. But then I kind of realised that I, I did need the backing of a of a of a profession. Um, I was yearning for that, and I uh, you know, I went to law school. I needed to get good marks so I could get a job, and then kind of got you know sucked into that that environment. But after a few years, I, I sat back and was like, actually, long term, this is not for me. I just, I just don't find it fulfilling, um, despite that. I actually really do enjoy being a lawyer. I like the intellectual rigor um, of it, and I'm really glad that uh, I'm professionally trained in that way. But in terms of what I do vocationally, like I, you know, I love this job. I love the opportunity to work with founders every day and um, and bring you know exciting opportunities to market. I find it really really fulfilling. Um, but in driving entrepreneurialism, like I. That I I am an entrepreneur. I think for many many years we've had a really you know uh, troubled relationship with that term in Australia. Um, people think about you know the eighties and nineties and you know um, you know Alan Bond and Christopher Scase and you know um, you know um, you know our relationship with these entrepreneur archetypes I think has been has been challenged. But over the last like ten years, um, you know the rise of uh, you know some of Australia's um, great and celebrated technology businesses and you know startup successes entered the zeitgeist. That I think we have a far healthier relationship with entrepreneurialism now, and this is something that needs to be supported because um, you know as uh, as as a country, as an economy, the things that are going to define our success and um, improve our lives in the future aren't aren't the things that have you know been as important to you know to our um, to our country in the in the past. Um, I, I don't I don't believe um, you know I think we've got lots of uh, intelligent people here, um, but it's hard it's hard living in Australia. But but it's great. Um, but you know we we really do need to become more innovative and leverage the full potential of of the talent that we've got here. And the best way that I think I can contribute um, is to uh, do what we're doing at Birchall and power uh, entrepreneurialism. So you know it's possible for people to um, think of something that can uh, you know be commercially successful and improve the world and they can see a credible pathway for getting the support that they need um, and I think it's important because you know we look to the states a lot of the time as inspiration you know for startup 
ecosystem. Um, but that's the largest pool of venture capital on the planet. I don't, I don't think it, it will ever be repeated and they have a totally different mindset to um, venture and entrepreneurialism. Um, there is just so much money that needs to be put to work. We don't really have that arrangement in Australia. We're going to have to build something different. And um, the opportunity that we've got with crowdsource funding is you know, a national audience of investors. Many of them are already investing in you know, listed stocks, um, you know, on ASX. We, we have a large proportion of investors in this country already. Uh, we need to open um, the aperture uh, for them. Um, so they can start thinking about having an allocation uh, to early stage, uh, you know, startups and SMEs in the, in their portfolio, and, that, and that's our mission. I think the other side to that, which I was always surprised at, we were raising, we were at the time we were a venture capital firm looking to raise capital for scale up businesses. The amount of interest we got from the run of the mill person, like a a former, what was she? She was like a finance director of one of the big one of the big unis. You know, like you wouldn't necessarily think she's really particularly interested in speculative investments, but she, you know, she's a, she's stuck her job for, you know, 40 years and accumulated a decent portfolio and was just only looking to allocate, I think maybe 10% of her portfolio, which would have been, you know, I think upwards of about 8 million bucks, something like that. But it's like, okay, well, you know, how do you do that? And then the effort it takes to actually find and to curate and to, like it is a rigmarole for venture capital firms. You know, it's like a full-time job trying to field through all this crap out there because there's a lot of crap. And I mean crap in the nicest sense. I mean, like, not every idea is a good idea, let's be frank. So, you know, working out what works and what's a good and knowing the spaces. So I think um, there's a lot of people actually who are trying to do good. I think it's it's not easy to do good and it's certainly not easy to do good in this term of this space of, of, of investing and if you want to just dabble in something rather than having to commit a fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar check, you know, you don't necessarily want to dabble a hundred grand. You know, that might that might be more significant than uh, it's much more interesting to dabble five hundred bucks or five grand and and say, oh, that's interesting, and learn more about the space. And then I'm just on the um, the grong grong. Is it grong grong? I'm always kind of nervous about pronouncing that. The um, grong grong solar farm, but they they've come back for round two, which I've seen. And it's interesting to see how they've progressed, um, and and some of the stories they're telling about the investors who came on first time round. So, yeah, Matt, I think you've obviously you've identified a really powerful niche. I think and people need a lot of help in this space, both the investor and the uh, the company side. Um, we're going to link to virtual. Forgive me, we've got to draw this to a close. Um, but it's been really awesome chatting to you. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on.